Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Poet once said, The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. And he uses this example of a wooden flute. And he said, you know, if a person is making a wooden flute, they have to carve into it. And each... Each turn of the blade cuts into the wood, and it, it pierces the wood. And in the end, after it has been wounded, it can play a beautiful song. The more, the more pain you experience, the more you are carved into, I think it has a direct relationship with the amount of joy that you can hold, the capacity for joy that you have. That's kind of a weird way to start an Easter message. But Easter isn't a standalone event. The celebration of Easter begins with the darkest of nights. It begins on Friday. It begins with uh, a week before, a parade of people who are screaming for Jesus, saying, save us. We believe that you're the one to come and save us. Only they had their mind all wrong, and they thought he was going to save us just in the here and now and bring a political revolution. And he had... None of that in mind. And he said, my kingdom is different. And when he was mocked, arrested, beaten, and then crucified, it was like the lights went out. It was like the hope that was glowing so strong a week before just faded to an ember and then went out. And that's where Easter begins in the quiet. Because Easter didn't come with a big boom. It didn't come with a, a huge announcement and big happy dance and celebration. Easter begins in the dark. Easter begins, John tells us in his gospel, where John says Mary Magdalene and probably a few others because uh, women probably wouldn't travel alone before the sun rose. So Mary Magdalene and her company are walking to the tomb before the sun has risen. Why are they going there? It's not because they're expecting to meet Jesus. It's not that they're expecting to see him alive. Likely they're going to finish the burial process. Likely what has happened, Jesus has been taken off the cross and in a hurry so that so that the Jewish people could get ready for Sabbath. They needed to stop working, so they likely got him down, prepared his body just enough that they could put him in a tomb, and he's likely uh, lying in in an open central area in the tomb, because a lot of tombs were family tombs. So there was a preparation table, and then once a body had been fully prepared, they would take it back and put it in, in one of the niches. And so likely his body was still, they were expecting it still there on the table, and they're going to do a good job. But this is sadness, and this is grief that they walk in. John tells us in John 20 that Mary didn't get what she was expecting, that the stone was rolled away, and fear comes over her, and sadness pours over her. In John 20, uh, it says in uh, verses 
uh, verse 2, it says, once she realized that Jesus wasn't there, that his body wasn't there, it's not like she wakes up and she's like, yes, it's time to celebrate Easter. Let's have the egg hunt. Let's go have all the candy and let's just celebrate and have fun together. This is the, the meal starts and we get to have a good time. She sees that he's not there and she's overcome with sadness because someone stole him. Someone stole the body. It wasn't, it wasn't enough that they just killed him. Then they took him so they couldn't even do justice to his burial. So she ran, John says, and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. The other disciple likely is John, who's writing this gospel. The one whom Jesus loved. John and Jesus had a really tight relationship, and he's recognizing it here. And Mary said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. And then John uh, 20 verses 3 through 10, I think describe an awkward and yet hilarious and we don't know what's happening thing going on. There is a race to the tomb. And John's writing it. So John has the last word in how this story gets recorded, right? So in verse 3 it says, So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. And reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first... It's like, okay, John, <laughs> there's something going on between the two of you. It's like sibling rivalry. Like, hey, I'm writing this. You can write your own letter if you want. I'm writing this account. I'm faster, just so everybody knows. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. And most of the time we look at that and, and we say, Well, he believed that Jesus was alive. He believed that the party had started. He believed that all of this was good. But it says in verse 9, For they did not understand the scripture yet, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So later on, they're hiding. Later on, they're still kind of camping out together, and they're with each other in the sadness, and Jesus shows up. And that's later. Right now, the men go back to their homes, and Mary is left in the garden. And we can see by her response that we don't know what's going on yet. They're still in the grief. And John wants us to know he was first, but it's not yet a party. They saw the burial clothes, the body was gone, and they didn't put it all together. Mary stayed. And John says, she was weeping at the tomb. And then she peers into the tomb and she sees two angels sitting there where Jesus had been. And normally in scripture, when angels show up, what is the response from people? Fear. Not like cute, cuddly, diaper-wrapped little cherubs shooting love arrows, right? Angels show up and it's terrifying. But Mary doesn't record that. Like, have you ever been in so much sorrow that you're not scared anymore? 
Have you ever been in so much sorrow that when something terrifying comes your way, it's like it just kind of glances off and you're not really even there? Jesus has an encounter with two angels, and she's in so much grief that she's not even scared. And then they ask her why she's weeping, and she doesn't say, I'm so happy that he's alive. I'm just crying tears of joy. Her response is, they took him. They took him. And then she turns around, and she sees a man whom she thinks is the gardener. He's there, he's there in the, uh, the tomb in the, in the garden area, and she looks and she thinks, well, that's, that's just a guy doing his job. And he asks her the same question. Why are you weeping? And she, she's in so much grief that she just starts to plead with him. Like, if you took him, tell me where he is. Then I can go take him. I can take care of the body. I, I, I want to do a good job. If you took him, please. And he says one word that changes everything. So again, here you ask the question, have you ever been in so much grief that you don't see something that's right in front of your face? Because this is Jesus. This is not the gardener. And he's standing right in front of her. He's not dead. He's standing there and he's alive and she can't even see him. Have you ever been in that kind of grief where you're just missing something because you're enveloped? In the sadness. He says one word that changes everything, that pierces through the grief, that grabs her right from her core. Do you know what he says? He calls her name. It's Mary. He doesn't have to explain everything. He doesn't have to walk her through all the details of what happened and who moved the stone and what theologically was going on. He just calls her name, Mary. And in that moment, the lights came back on. And the hope that had died started to glow again in Mary's chest. And I'm sure that her heart started pounding. And it says, she, she lunged at him, basically. He says, wait, wait, not yet. This is not the time. Like, more things are happening. And she falls at his feet, and she is so undone. But this time, it's a different kind of undone. This time, it's an undone in joy. When all hope had been lost, Jesus is now standing in front of her. And she looks back to Friday, and she sees his body, and she hears the taunts, and she hears the ridicule, and she, she remembers the blood. And now Jesus is standing in front of her whole Jesus is alive again, and he's calling her name. That changes everything. John sets Mary up as a witness, that Mary was one of the first to see Jesus alive. She had been with him. She heard him teaching. She had walked with him. She had touched Jesus, and now Mary sees him alive. John himself in his gospel, and in First John that we've been walking through, he talks about how he himself has been a witness to Jesus, how he has seen him and heard him and touched him and followed him. And John joins with a chorus of other witnesses 
who can speak about Jesus and say, we saw him. We saw him when he was here. We saw him before he was killed. And now we saw him alive again. And in 1 John 5, 6 through 10, John talks about Jesus. And I want to count together the number of times, the number of different witnesses that John brings, as if he's bringing a court, uh, to court the evidence of Jesus being who he claimed to be, being fully God and fully man, being the one who could save us and the one who we could worship. John says, this is the one who came by water. This is Jesus' baptism and God's favor coming and resting on him. This is my son pointing to his divinity. And John says, and by the blood, which is the crucifixion, which is his humanity. Like he was killed. He knows what it's like to be us. John says, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. So now he gets into the witnesses and he's counting. There are three that testify. The Spirit and the water, his divinity and humanity speak to who he is, and the, and the, and the blood. He says, these three agree. And if we receive the testimony of men, he says, so in Jewish custom, if you were bringing someone to trial, you had to have two or three witnesses. And so John is saying, look, look, we believe the testimony, we believe the witness of humans. He says, if we believe the testimony of men, the testimony of God the Father is greater. For this, that Jesus was fully God and fully human, this is the testimony of God that he has, been bo- that he has born concerning his Son. And whoever believes in the Son of God has testimony in himself. So John is saying, the Spirit and the water, and the blood, and he adds, God the Father himself is testifying to Jesus. This is evidence of who Jesus is. And in verse 10, it says, whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. That's five. So your belief is a testimony to who Jesus is. John says, whoever believes in Jesus, that is a witness. That is, I have seen Jesus. I've come to put my life in him. I've come to put my trust in him. And I can tell you about Jesus. This isn't just those four, as if those weren't enough. Other people have witnessed Jesus. Other people have seen him. Other people have been changed because he rose from the dead. And I have my own experience. And coupled together with those others, It just adds to the evidence. It says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So what are all of these things saying in unison? What is the collective testimony? John says in verse 11, this is the testimony. That God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Easter begins in the darkness. And, And we get introduced to Jesus, whom death could not conquer. And he didn't just rise for himself. He rose so that he could give life. This, this is why Easter 
is important. This is why we celebrate. Because Jesus is worthy to be worshipped and because he offers life from the inside out, a life that can be changed, a life that says no matter, no matter, no matter where you've come from, no matter what your past looks like, no matter how many mistakes you've made, how much shame you have heaped up on your shoulders, how much guilt is yours that other people have put on you or that you rightly deserve, all of that, all of that is paid for on the cross and then washed away by the empty tomb. That Jesus paid our debt and then defeated death and offers life. This, this is the celebration of Easter. That Jesus was fully God and was able to conquer death and fully human so that he could shoulder our debt. On the cross, he bore our sin and our shame and our guilt. Remember the poet's line. The deeper that sorrow cars into your being, the more joy you can contain. It is a good thing to recognize your sin. It is not good to simply just wash it away and pretend it's not there. It is good to look at your sin and recognize your brokenness. Because the deeper you get carved out, the the deeper you see how ugly your heart is, how broken you are, the more joy can be contained in the song that you sing. And so if you look at your sin and you recognize your sin, and then you say all of that got put on the shoulders of Jesus and he took it, he took it so it's not mine anymore. That he loved me enough to look at me and do that for me. That he found me worthy. Not because I had earned it, but because he loved. That changes everything. Jesus told a very short story in Luke 7. He's having a dinner party with the religious upright. And a woman comes in and falls at his feet. And she's a woman of ill reputation. And she starts pouring out this expensive perfume and, and weeping at his feet and drying his, uh, his feet with her hair. And uh, the people who think they have it all put together start to look and sneer. And like, does he even know who she is? Like, if he knew she, who she was, he wouldn't even allow her to touch him. That, like, that's going to rub off. And Jesus tells this very short story. Luke seven forty one and 42. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And then when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? The reason that it's a good thing to look at your sin is because it makes you all the more appreciative for what Jesus has done for you. It's not so that, so that you or others or God can just thumb down on you and say, see how bad you are, and that's done. Like, I saved other people, but really, you made a mess of things. The reason we look at our sin is because he's already given a gift. It's because he's already died for us, because he's already extending the invitation. But the more I see my sin, the more I can appreciate what he's done. The more we are forgiven, the more love we have. So Good Friday marks the sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made him 
to be sin, who knew no sin. But Jesus, though he had no sin of himself, bore all of that on his shoulders so that we might become the righteousness of God. So that, it says. It's Friday isn't the end of the story. Not only did he... Did he bear our sin? He rose again. He defeated death. He offers us life. And it's one that begins right here and now. And it lasts forever. 1 John 5.11 says, This is what God has testified, that he has given us eternal life. And this life is in the Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have Son does not have life. Do you have this life? Have you put your belief in Jesus? Have you put your faith in him that says, I want to quit running this myself. I want to quit straining and trying to make up for the sins of my past. Or I I think I'm pretty good. I look, I compare myself to others, and they're a mess, and I'm better. So, you know, if it's between me and them, I'm good. Have you put your faith in Jesus? In Jesus alone for what he did and for what he offers do you have this life because if you do then today is the grandest of celebrations we say thank you jesus if you do not today could be the day that you really start to live today could be the day that you accept his invitation with his arms stretched out you say he's he's calling my name In the same way that he called Mary in the garden and her eyes were open, maybe today is the day that you recognize for the first time he's calling my name. And he's looking at me and he's not looking at me with eyes of shame and disgust. He's looking at me like he wants me to come to him. Do you recognize he's calling your name? Maybe Easter has never made sense to you. Maybe it's never all lined up. And why do we do these things? Maybe life is really hard. Maybe life is confusing. And Jesus doesn't promise to clean it all up. But he does promise to get in and to renew you and to make you new from the inside out. Today we celebrate that Jesus is alive and that he's calling our name. So, I want to be done talking. You guys okay with that? We're going to have four people today get baptized. And what they're doing, what they're doing as they get baptized is uh, they're giving testimony. They're giving witness to say, I'm that fifth witness. I'm that fifth witness. While God has showed himself and other people have seen him, I'm adding into the chorus because my life has been changed. We didn't pour any special kind of water in this pool, okay? There's nothing about this that is inherently spiritual. Baptism is a symbol. I think it's a really beautiful and powerful symbol of what happens in the life of somebody when they turn their life over to Jesus, when they trust in him. To say, I'm going to stop doing this on my own, and I'm going to trust what he did for me. I want the old life to die, and I want the life that Jesus offers. 
And so baptism is a picture of someone going down into the grave, the old life that has been put to death. And when they come up, it's a celebration of the new life that he's already planted in them. And we get to declare and we get to shout and we get to cheer. We're in this. This is what they're saying. I'm in it. And we get to say, and we've got you. Baptism literally means to be surrounded. And the water does that. And we get to do that. We get to surround them as they declare, I'm all in. And so we want, like, we want to call the kids back in so that they can be a part of this. And so uh, Alicia is going to come up and she's just going to play um, the refrain from that song that we just sang. And we'll have a little bit of an awkward transition and we're all just going to be okay with that. You can talk to somebody. We're going to go call the kids back in. Um, and then we're going to get ready for baptism.